You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 51 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And greetings from the Sachem Public Library's booth, recording studio in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. Remember to join our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. And please consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague because word of mouth is how people learn about us. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. So today joining us is Mary Glendening. Uh, Mary is the director of the Middletown Free Library in Media, Pennsylvania. And Mary uh, has been running maker programs at the library for some time and has been successful in winning several grants to start and expand the library's pop-up makerspace, Create Space at the MFL. She is also the author of two books, Video Games to Real Life and Makerspace Sound and Music Projects for All Ages. Thanks for coming uh, on the podcast and spending, taking some time to speak to us today. Well, thanks for having me on. So we're going to talk uh, with Mary all about her library's makerspace and how it's inspired her books. But first, we want to get to know her a little bit. So can you tell us about your library, where it is located, and the type of population you serve? Sure. Um, so the Middletown Free Library is an independent library that's part of a federated system, the Delaware County Libraries. And um, we're located in Media, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and our township is about 15,000 people, but we, serve, we attract people from... Um, all over the county and even outside of the county. We've had some people come down from Scranton, Allentown area to come to programs because we're the only ones that um, are offering some of the things that we do. Even had uh, Arduino Day program. We had a kid from Maryland show up to our program because there was no place uh, for for him to go. That's great. Um, So we serve, uh, you know, typical suburban populations, Becoming more diverse, and um, we have a, a pretty robust uh, Russian-speaking population and uh, some Chinese speakers. So we're starting to expand our collection into um, so adding some foreign languages to our to our collections that we haven't had before, because now we have some some demand for it. Um, we have a lot of seniors and families that use the library, so I'd say we're pretty typical here. Mary, do you know? the size of your population that you serve? Uh, we're about, um, our township's about 15,000, 15,000, people. Gotcha. Okay. So where did your library career begin? And uh, are you originally from PA? Um, originally, I'm from Patchogue, New York. No way. Hey, now yes. you're in All right. <laughs> I live in Patchogue, Are you a Pat Med grad? Nice. What's that? Are you a Pat Med grad? No, um, I... Was I went to Canaan Lake Elementary School and then we moved uh, to Marietta, Georgia. So oh, okay. Yeah, and then we. Yeah, I grew up in Medford. So wow. Nice. Small yeah. world, right? <laughs> Great yeah. stuff comes from Patchogue, Chris. Great stuff comes guess, from. Patchogue. Guess where Bob lives. Okay, that's true. <laughs> I live right now. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So um, yeah, so I, I was a page in high school. Um, that was like probably my best high school job. You know, I worked in fast food and all those kind of fun jobs. So working in the library was awesome. Um, and then when I was in college, I, um, I worked in the Middle East library for a little bit. Um, 
And I, I did a directed studies at the Immigration History Research Center that's part of the University of Minnesota. And I had thought I was going to go into archives and um, I don't know, I was coming upon graduation and I was like, okay, well now what am I going to do? I have <laughs> went to college for four years and I still have no idea what I want to do with my life. So um, I found the library directory and I just sent my resume to a bunch of places. Um, my parents lived in New Jersey and my dad was working in New York. And um, so I just I sent my resume to the New York Public Library and they happened to be hiring uh, librarian trainees because they were going to have six days of service, you know, one of those, those rounds of, <laughs> of extended service at New York Public Library. And I got hired and, um, and it's kind of that's and I've been in libraries ever since. Great. So, of course, Dr. Uh, Michael Hines will be really happy that we're uh, interviewing a Patchogue resident. <laughs> former, yeah, another Patchogue uh, originator. That's great. Yeah. You know, he's in Finland now. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. doing some pretty cool stuff. He sure is. So, uh, Mary, how long have you been in the library field and how long uh, have you been a director? Sure. So, um, I started with New York Public Library as a trainee um, in 1993. Um, so, so some time now. <laughs> uh, I've been a director, um, I don't know, probably like, I guess for the last 10 years or so. Um, I was, I worked in some places where I was a branch manager, so I wasn't really a director, but it's sort of like that step to becoming a director. And then, um, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, around 2008 or so, I became a director of a small, small library. Um, called Narberth Community Library, which is right outside Philadelphia. It's a small, small, really small library. <laughs> I was like the only full time there. So, um, and then this happened to the, where I am now. I saw the position open, and it was perfect because my son was going into elementary school, and it's a lot closer to home. So, I've been there for about six years. Good. Wow. So, without giving away too much, because we're going to get into this okay. in the next segment, tell us how makerspace has caught your eye? Um, I saw some stuff on Facebook and I think in library journal or something about a space that was set up in a trailer in Indiana somewhere, I believe. And it just looked really cool. And um, I grew up, my dad had a wood shop in our basement and, um, you know, like kind of the seventies and radio shack and all that kind of stuff. So I was always interested in I, I sew and, and things like that. So it just seemed like a really cool, um, cool idea way to keep their library relevant. And, um, you know, it just seems like the library and making is a really good, a really good fit. Well, we have a lot to talk about. So this was a really quick first segment. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about, uh, her, uh, I can't talk tonight. It's a Thursday night, folks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're going to talk about the uh, library's Create Space at MFL uh, authorship and a whole bunch more. So we'll be right back.
And we are back with Mary Glendening from the Middletown Free Library. Okay, so let's talk about makerspaces. Strictly from an administrative point of view, when you say makerspace, the first thing that comes through the mind of a director or any administrator, um, you know, other than how, we, how do we start this, is how are we going to afford this? From, from my experience uh, at the CHM Public Library, um, it isn't always a huge cost with regard to starting a makerspace. But can you explain how you're able to get um, funding for CreateSpace? Sure. So um, around the time when I started seeing about libraries in makerspaces, uh, it was uh, LSTA funding was was uh, becoming available in Pennsylvania um, for the, the round of, of funding. And um, I just happened to post something on, on Facebook about how I would love to, to do this at my library. And uh, one of the administrators at Delaware County Library saw my post and she's like, oh, did you know? LSTA is opening up soon, and this is one of the areas that um, is part of the Pennsylvania five-year plan, so you should apply. And I had just been at the Middletown uh, for about a month and a half when I dove into this project. <laughs> I knew I had the support of the board president um, at the time, uh, Gary Grove. He was, uh, low, he's like a big proponent of makerspaces and 3D printing and, and stuff, so... He was all about it. It was great to be able to, to just kind of dive right into that and have the support from my board uh, to do it. Um, so I, I wrote up the grant. I did some research about uh, U-Media in Chicago and um, found some information about some other makerspaces. I was interested. I knew we didn't have, we only have one uh, space in our library. So I knew I didn't have like a space to create a, a dedicated uh, makerspace. So I have to figure out how to create the space and be able to pull it out when we needed it and then put everything back when uh, the next program was going to be happening in the room and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I put that together and I'm lucky my husband um, is an audio engineer. So he was, so I knew like music and audio um, was going to be part of our space. So I kind of incorporated all of that into it and I just decided to go for it. So I wrote this like $30,000 LSTA grant, and we were really lucky um, that we were funded for the whole thing, and um, we've been able to expand it through um, some additional grants. That's fantastic. So, when you say the word, or is it two words in this in this idea, uh, makerspace? What does it mean to you? And it can mean so many things depending on who you ask. Um, but for you, what does that word mean? Oh, sure. So, um, actually, just gave a talk at the Pennsylvania Library Association about a kind of a topic. Cause I think like when a lot of people think of makerspaces, they think like really high tech, like you gotta have 3D printers and robotics and all this kind of stuff. And, and that stuff is cool. But like to me, a makerspace is really um, a space where people can explore their creativity, um, you know, try out something new, um, you know, maybe get exposure to, to a new technology like a carving machine or or 3D printer or something like that, but also to be able to do things like sewing or um, audio recording, to be uh, decorating cupcakes and learning cake decorating techniques. It really is, it really encompasses like so much. And I think sometimes people focus so narrowly on the technology end of it. They forget about all these other things that that are, are part of really um, making and, and can be part of makerspaces. But to me, it's really about, um, you know, exploring your creativity, uh, learning some skills, 
uh, especially for kids, like, you know, getting them to be able to learn how to collaborate and even like getting a chance to use some kind of simple tools like a drill or a Dremel or, or something like that. So many kids don't have exposure to that. You like let them like drill holes into something and they don't even care what they make. They're just excited. They got to like use a tool. <laughs> um, so I, I just think it's really about um, a place where people can, you know, learn and develop their passions and uh, maybe discover a, a passion for something they never knew they had. Um, and it could be low tech, high tech. It doesn't really matter. Well, I think, uh, I'm sorry, I lowered my uh, volume there. Um, so you, you struck upon um, something that I also feel is very important with regard to makerspaces, um, you know, because it doesn't have to be high-tech things that you're working with. It can be hammers, uh, ratchets, uh, stuff that kids nowadays don't really have much exposure to. Um, so if you could tell us about some of the, the low-tech items and equipment that you have in your space and what the most popular things are, um, you know, because we could talk about 3D design and, you know, all, all that high-tech stuff like you were talking about before, but at the end of the day, makerspaces really are just about creating regardless of what you're creating or how you're doing it. Um, and tell us a little bit about how you do your sound recording stuff too, just because we're nerds. Huh. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we have some basic hand, hand tools like hammers and, and drills. Um, we have a we got through uh, Instructables, a whole set of Dremels. So we have uh, Dremels available. Um, we do a lot of uh, painting programs. So people uh, from kids to, to adults uh, come in and learn different painting techniques. Uh, we do tons of stuff with cardboard. And I mean, we're like so many toilet paper rolls sitting in our boiler room for projects. It's like, um, you know, it's just, don't really need a lot of stuff you can build um like one of the projects in our sound and music book is you know making instruments out of everyday objects like cereal boxes and rubber bands um so you can really you know and you can use that to explore pitch and learn about the science of of sound and how sounds created but you have, to have a bunch of fancy equipment and you can bring in other stuff later starting even um so when we do uh we programs with a little bit for synth kits. Uh, we really start out at a super basic level, like a physical level where the kids will mimic a filter with their hands over their ears and making sounds and doing things with their body before we even move into uh, working with the equipment. So, um, you know, you don't, you can do so much with, with what you have around. It's just, you know, having some creativity and I mean, there's so many ideas out there on the internet and stuff. You really, really don't need a lot of stuff to get started. Well, you know, it's interesting you, you mentioned all that stuff. And, and one of the challenges that, that we see with our makerspace is how you integrate classes for adults and makerspaces. Because it's really easy with the kids because they're always exploring new things. One of the, the things that, that tends to be a struggle sometimes is how you get adults in to do something um, that may not necessarily be high tech. Do you have any hints about that kind of uh, subject with regard to the adult population? So the adults in our community really love the painting programs. So we do this program called Paint Space, and they watch videos on YouTube and learn how to make a painting that way. So it's sort of like, um, you know, those places where you go and you 
you bring your bottle of wine and everybody paints the paint, same painting. Right. But this, I like choose paintings from these videos on YouTube and uh, we have acrylic paints and we give them a canvas and they create, um, they learn how to make painting that way. And we've done um, watercolors and some drawing classes and stuff like that. And those art-based classes really seem to draw adults in and they really enjoy those a lot. Um, when I was doing the Minecraft in real life club, sometimes the parents would hang around to watch and they were just, they were, I think you could like do some of the programs you do for kids for adults and they would come because they were like, oh my God, like this is the greatest thing ever. Why aren't we, why aren't we, why can't we do this? When are you having this program for adults? And we would be like making stop motion animation with iPads and like Minecraft figures and paper crafts. And um, so I, I think sometimes like it's, and, and I don't really know how to do this. I'm not a marketing person, but sometimes it's just maybe like find that spin to calling it the right thing to, to, to bring in the adults. Cause I, I found when I was doing that, they were like excited about the things the kids were doing and they were like almost jealous of their kids that they got to do this cool stuff and they just on the sidelines or outside the room watching. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I think it's great because you know what, Mary, your points, um, take a lot of the fear away from somebody starting a makerspace because they don't have to have a, a fifty thousand dollar budget to start. You know, they can start off small and introduce some things as they go. So, that's a great point. Yeah, and it's good to start out small. I mean, like it was great that we had all this money, but there's some stuff that we got. You know, that I'm kind of like, well, we don't really use it that much, and it was like a, you know, the learning curve's kind of high. And if we don't, uh, you know, like we have some of those silhouette um, cameo. Mm -hmm. machines sure and like if you don't use that a lot you kind of forget how to do it so then when you want to do a program with it you're like okay now i gotta sit down and like remember how to design with the software and they probably have a new version of the software out by that time and you're just like oh my god like what why did we get this but so sometimes it's i think it's almost better to start out and, and figure out what your community likes and um you know kind of get a feel for what they want to do because maybe they really want to do sewing. So you'd be better off spending your money on sewing machines. Um, you know, so it's really, sometimes it's better, I think, to, to start small so you can kind of figure those things out. And if you only have one thing to learn, it's a lot easier than you're like, okay, now we have all this stuff and who's going to, who's going to figure, who's going to sit here and learn this and figure it out and, and teach the class and get people using it. Do you yeah, that's right. Otherwise, you just have a place with a bunch of a bunch of stuff in it. So, that's a great lead into our next question. Um, you can build the most advanced and absolutely awesome space in the history of Library Land, but honestly, without classes and programs and events, the space is just a place with a bunch of stuff, like we just said. So, tell us a little bit about what programs you offer, and if you bring in experts or use in-house staff, um, and was patron turnout slow to attend in the beginning, uh, and did it build, or or was it a success like right from the start? Um, so those are all really great questions. So, um, we kind of, we do a mix of things. So the staff do some, some of the instruction and then we bring in outside experts. Um, we have a, a Carvey machine, which is, I will say hands down my favorite thing in our makerspace. Um, but so we have, uh, an art center near us and the woman that runs the art center wanted to learn how to, to use it to make, uh, her own stamps. So we collaborated and did a class together. So I taught people how to design the stamps on the Carby. And then she came back for a second, uh, for like the second part of the workshop and taught them um, stamping techniques. Uh, so that's uh, a really great way to do it too. If you can combine two things, like maybe you have an expertise in something and 
somebody else can teach how to use that thing you make or something like that. Um, so we, um, I feel like we all kind of have our little special thing that we like to do as well. So um, our children's librarian does a lot of um, programs with repurposed materials. Uh, he likes to do that kind of stuff. And, you know, people are environmentally conscious, so you don't always want to be like making things on a 3D printer. And people are like, oh, why are we making plastic junk? Um, <laughs> <laughs> a better way to put it. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, so... Uh, we also have, uh, we do preschool robotics with the Cubettos. Um, and we have some teens that actually come in and do a coding camp with Makey Makeys and uh, Lego Mindstorms and stuff like that um, in the summertime. And those teens also do a stop motion animation program. So during the school year, they kind of trade off one week is coding um, and one week is stop motion animation. Um, so it's kind of a real combination of, of different things. Um, from the staff to volunteers to uh, collaborating with people outside. Uh, last year, we did a music creation series with uh, teenagers, or I guess most of the kids we had were probably like 12 to 14. Um, and for that, I taught some of the classes. Uh, my husband came in and did some of the classes, and we worked with the local uh, rock. They did some of the, the programs. So it was a... Um, like, so that collaborative piece is, is really good, too. And, you know, it's like I – it's nice. I'm usually there for those kind of programs because, like, I know the kids that come in. I love working with that age group. So and we, have, and we have a lot of repeats people that come from that age group. So, like, I, I you know, know the kids' personalities and kind of, like, can help guide that way and then bringing in experts to, to help teach some of the things like songwriting or, um, you know, the tech, technical – Parts of maybe GarageBand, which I don't really use that much. So I'm not familiar with it, but our guy from the rock school was, so he, he taught that segment of, of the class. Um, That's awesome. I feel like you asked me another question and I forget what it was. Um, just was it uh, was it slow to attend in the beginning, or did it build? Oh. Um, right. So um, it was kind of it was kind of a combination of both. So the Minecraft in Real Life Club was like an immediate hit, where I had like. Parents trying to bribe me with donations to get their kids off the waiting list, <laughs> <laughs> which was really weird, and I've never had that before. Um, but then other stuff, um, stuff for adults was really hard to build, and that was like trying to find the right thing and, you know, find the right time to offer a program. Um, the Minecraft thing, like, was just kind of a natural just because that attract, just calling it Minecraft in real life club, like, the word Minecraft just drew people to the program because it was so popular. Um, you know, and I would get a kid that'd be like, oh, when are we going to play Minecraft? I thought we were playing Minecraft. And it's like, well, no, that's not what this is about. So that's not going to happen. But, um, you know, that was a pretty a program where we steadily had like, um, you know, I had to put cap, cap it sometimes because I couldn't teach a room of like 25 kids how to do uh, e-textiles or something by myself so um and it was mostly boys so that was like kind of a crazy energy <laughs> sometimes so yeah so um yeah so I would kind of cap it at about 15 kids because that was about all I could could handle but um other stuff has just been kind of building over time and as we've introduced different things like um and putting some we never used to do that much adult 
programming in the evening, but then when we started offering the art classes in the evening that, um, you know, those classes fill up and, and stuff now. So it's just been trying to build it and, and get the word out and that kind of thing. And so, you know, sometimes you have a program not that many people show up to, but that's, sometimes that's okay because it's easier to teach a smaller group. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's something that I'm not super comfortable with, but it's, you know, it's, um, the 3D printer, you know, like we keep the 3D printer out on the floor so that sometimes it's in like constant use and then other times like nobody will use it for a month. So it's it definitely like ebbs and, and flows, um, you know, kind of like summer's really busy and then the fall kind of things drop off. So tell what me a little bit more about what you do with the Carvey because we actually have one at work and we're trying to find where it fits into the model. Um, because they come with those, those square pieces of plastic with the different color in the middle. Oh, yeah. Um, tell me about some of the projects that you've done with the Carvey. So um, I did fidget spinners with oh, really? the 8 to 12-year-olds. And that was, uh, they had, uh, they were doing in Inventables, or yeah, Inventables like live on YouTube like every Friday for a while when they like were first really pushing the machine. And they did one on uh, fidget spinner. So I just kind of took her lesson of the basic one and I, I taught the kid, everybody made the same fidget spinner. Um, so that way it was easier for me to, to teach them so I could go around and, and help them and that kind of thing. Uh, but they all were, it was great because they were all able to make a fidget spinner and leave with a su successful project, which we were making them on the 3d printer. I mean, I wouldn't be printing 3d print or 3d printing fidget spinners for like a week. Right. So I <laughs> <have> theirs. <laughs> um, so uh, that's, I really, you know, like in two and a half minutes, it cuts the thing out and you're like, Ooh, this is awesome. Uh, so we did the, the stamps. Um, so that we, I think they have some linoleum that you can get, like linoleum blocks and do the stamps. Mm -hmm. um, and with those ones, those multicolored uh, things, we did, we've created tiles. So um, I actually have one here. Actually, this one's in my book. <laughs> so, um, so this was like a project to learn the different pieces or the different some of the different tools in the little software. So you can like, um, you know, import. This was like an imported image from the internet, and then this was like in their library, and then adding text. Uh, so like we've done these tiles with kids mm -hmm. and teens, and they like that because they can. They were like excited to bring them home and like put them on the wall in their room. Um, and that was like, and I've had adult classes with that. That was a pretty popular um, session with a bunch of different, different age groups. So it was a good way to get started and teach people things. But I did learn if the design is too complicated and big, it takes a long time for them to carve out. Like not 3D printer long, but like, you know, 20 minutes. 20 minutes and maybe two bits. Yeah. How many bits have you broken? In the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning, I broke like a bunch. Yeah. But, yeah, and we've done uh, Christmas ornaments. Really? Yeah. And what kind of wood? You use wood, I guess, for that, or plastic? or? Um, I bought that kit that, uh, that we used acrylic, I think. Okay. I I personally made a prop for my son's Halloween costume last year um, with a piece of acrylic where I cut it out and had it like... Um, Carbon, like sort of etch in the design. Um, so there's like lots of stuff you you can do. So like if you wanted to do like Halloween, you know, co costume thing, it could be like 
have people design props if they needed a prop for their costume or something. That's you pretty know, cool. Small scale, but um, he was Sam from Trick or Treat. If you ever seen that movie, he has like this lollipop. Uh huh. That's like guess his weapon. <laughs> so, that's, <laughs> so I made, so I was able to make that on the Carvey, which was awesome. That's pretty cool. Really, really cool stuff. Okay, um, so switching gears for a second, um, you're also an author of two books. Uh, the first is from video games to real life, and the other is makerspace sound and music projects for all ages. So tell us about each of the books and how they've affected what happens over in, in your makerspace. Sure. So, um, so the video games to real life uh, that came about. Um, so that's through Libraries Unlimited, and that really came about. They approached me after some postings in uh, a listserv that I'm a part of that I haven't actually checked in a long time, but I used to be active in it. And uh, they contacted me and were like, oh, this, like what you're doing sounds really interested. Would you be willing to, to write a book on this topic? And I had never written a book before, so it was kind of a scary prospect, but I decided that, you know, to, to do that. So, um, so I was able to take some of the projects that we were already doing and incorporate that into that book and really, and it was helpful on like, um, doing research for it to think more about how you set up a space in a makerspace to encourage um, collaboration and, um, you know, exploration of some of the materials you might put out and, and things like that. Um, and, and I thought about some other ways you could incorporate in like those IMLS 21st century skills, how you could use those skills around like creating, say, your own like mini Minecon in the library and how the kids could plan that and you could bring in a financial piece by like, are they going to charge admission? Are they going to sell something there? This kind of thing. Um, just exploring different things that we could introduce in, into the, that kind of programming. Um, so it was kind of even like thinking about note blocks in Minecraft and how we could use the synth kits or things like that to add a musical piece. So it was great in like, getting out some of the projects that we were already doing, but thinking about other ways, like, and Minecraft's such a rich world that there's so many elements you can pull out to, to, to do things with. So, like, you know, you can hatch chickens in the game, so why not tie that in and hatch chickens in the library or, or something like that. Um, so, so that was kind of fun. Um, we have not hatched chickens in the library yet, but I would love to do that at this point. <laughs> um, so... Uh, and then the other, the other book, the Makerspace Sound and Music Projects that um, we present, Kevin and I presented our uh, the programming that we were already doing uh, at at the library at Maker Fair, and um, Tad McGraw Hill approached us after our presentation about about doing that. I like got back to to work on Monday, and there was an email from them. Oh, like. I missed your presentation, but it sounds really cool. And there's like nothing out there on this topic. Like, would you be interested in, in doing this? So we were like, sure, why not? Um, so I, that was really fun because I got to explore some things that I hadn't used before, like the bare um, conductive touch board. And I'm really like, when I have some money to like buy, a, a, I don't know, like maybe six or six or eight of them. I would love to, to incorporate those into a, a project in the, in the library. And um, for that kind of project, I thought about like, well, how can you incorporate like books or literacy or story into a 
a music or sound project. So my idea for that was making interactive um, folk tales or fairy tales. So then you don't have to worry about, um, you know, like if you're going to put on YouTube, like who owns the copyright to this? Because they're all in the public domain. And, and there's so many stories like um, that have the potential for learning how to record your own sound effects or even like finding sound effects online and editing them and putting them on the board. So they touched on like a lot of uh, different skills. So some things we haven't done in the library yet, but I'm like really interested, like once we have maybe a, a better space to, to do something like that, that um, like how cool would it be to have it like on a big canvas on the wall and have a story time with an interactive um, story that the, you know, you could have a group of teens do this and then they could present it to the kids and, and have it on the wall or even have it as like a, a temporary piece in the library that people could visit, and, you know, explore the story of John Henry through sound or something like that. Um, so it's kind of drawing from stuff that we were doing in the library, thinking about things like, um, you know, what else other possibilities are there out that you could, how you could incorporate this into a, a small group, um, or in a classroom or our learning experience before the, um, the music book, they wanted us to think about a variety of audiences, like homes, from homeschooling to a teacher in a school to, to maybe librarians. Um, and part of the goal with that too was to keep the projects fairly inexpensive. So um, I think like the, probably the most expensive project in that book was um, the, the interactive t-shirt uh, using the, Lilypad MP3, uh, just because those are a little bit more expensive than a regular uh, Lilypad. But um, you know, everything was was fairly inexpensive in the book, and and the great thing is most of the stuff you you can use, like reuse a Lilypad, like once maybe you outgrew the shirt or something, you can take it off and reuse it in a, in a different project. So um, that was something we kept in mind when we were creating the projects for that as well. So everything is accessible and inexpensive. Startup. And I think the, the key to that is the inexpensive part, too, because, I mean, not every library has a, a robust budget the way they can afford to do everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that does, that does make a lot of sense. And a lot of the renewable stuff you were talking about before, too, also makes a lot of sense, too. Um, even in terms of not just with Carvey, but, you know, some of the other things like cardboard craft and, and things like that for the kids. Yeah. It does yeah, it's always like thinking about that, like with the Carvey. So we... It's like sitting out on the, the floor. Not that many people use it outside of programs. And part of that is because I haven't really pushed that for use out of programs because I haven't quite figured out how to, how to charge for the materials or whatever. Um, and that's a big struggle, a right? Straightforward, yeah. 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 That's something that we're struggling with right now because we have a laser engraver as well, so that's pretty straightforward. We figured out how to charge for that. 3D printing is pretty... Straightforward, you know, with how you charge for that. But how do you charge, you know, for something that may take five minutes, may take an hour, depending on the pattern, depending on if you have to stop because the drill bit's breaking and, and some of the other stuff. So so that's still a bit of a challenge for us as well. Yeah. And what do you do if somebody breaks the drill bit? Is it their fault because they made a mistake in how they set up the machine? Or, like, right. you know, a little bit more complicated, I feel like, in, as far as offering that outside of programs. But... Um, I'm sure we'll figure it out at some point. Right. I thought about just charging for like the materials 
Right, and we kind of, we we kind of do that with the laser engraver, where you have to bring their own material, and we give them like criteria. Uh, but with, with the Carvey, um, you know, I want to explore doing more wood than plastic to start with, just because mm-hmm. wood's easier to get, it's cheaper. You can go to a you know uh, like a, a factory, uh, you know, a carpentry factory that has all the discards, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes yeah. they discard some pretty big pieces, so you can really get some really nice wood for free. So, and it doesn't really matter what kind of wood you use, too, because it could be pine, it could be oak, it could be maple. Right. It's a CNC machine, so it'll cut it all. And, you know, the bits are, are fairly um, strong. But yeah. the, I think the big challenge is outside, like you were saying, outside of programming, what can you really do with it unless you have somebody who's really creative coming in with an idea? So yeah. I, I think, you know, maybe, like you said before, you're not a marketer, but what do you use? You know, how do you get the person in the door to use that outside of programming? I think that's a big challenge, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I've had some people who are interested, but they haven't necessarily come back either. Um, I'm thinking about offering a class, another stamp making class, but aiming it at people with um, like a small business because we have like a local pizza place. I was like, oh, I would love to learn how to do that and make our own stamps for our um, our boxes or you know, our, our bags and, and stuff at the pizza parlor. So like, I, I think there's some business kinds of businesses that would like to have something, something like that. And, and maybe that's a way you get adults in too, is like kind of figuring out how you can use the tools um, to help out small business people or, or things like that and, and letting them know that stuff exists. Makes a lot of sense. It does. And, and that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's actually a population that, that, um, I know we're exploring uh, getting more involved with it's it's the business owners and having them come and giving them cards, you know, even though they may not live in a district because they own a business in the district, they're still paying taxes into the district. And we give them, uh, you know, business business level library cards mm-hmm. and they come in and we've had one person as a, a realtor come in and work with an embroidery machine to make mm-hmm. uh, patches for their for their shirts, for their uniforms and so right. it, it, I think it's a population that isn't as served as you, you would for the residents who live there. So it's, it is another um, avenue to explore. Yeah, definitely. And like we have a subscription to lynda.com, which we had initially purchased to support the, the makerspace. And we've just kept it going because it gets a lot of use. And like when you talk to, to business people and you're like, oh, well, we have this. They're like, oh, my God, what? We're paying. I pay for this. It's so expensive. And you mean I can use that with my library card? And it's. And, you know, that kind of maybe gets you in the door, too, with with the local business people to to kind of hopefully then open the door to some other things that you can offer through your space. So true. So, so true. Um, so I think we're going to take a short break. Okay. Um, but we wanted to thank you for sharing all that information with our listeners because I think not just Carvey, but sometimes people have this, these – misconceptions about makerspaces and mm-hmm. it's good to see that um, what you're doing is kind of like what we're doing over at Sachem where we're focusing low tech and high tech so yeah um, definitely it, it's for me it's validation at least I don't know about anybody else but for yeah, me it's, it's, it's good validation you know maybe I'm doing something right uh, so let's take a quick break and when we come back we're going to ask you our top 10 library questions or what we like to call the okay. 032 list which is the Dewey top num- the Dewey number for top 10 lists and we have to give credit to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming a list that we uh, torture all of our guests with. So we'll be right back. (laughs) 
And we are back with Mary Glendening, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions <laughs> in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Visit their site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so um, we're not going to hold you to any of the answers, but it is fun. it's a fun list of questions we like to ask our guests. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, what did you want to be when you were a child? Dude, this is like a tricky question for me because I never anything like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I think I've always like been interested in so many different things that like it's just I, that's probably how I ended up in the library because I couldn't decide on anything. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? I do remember going to the Patchog Library with my brother when I was a kid. I remember going in the summer and getting books with my, you know, my mom would take us there and, um, you know, getting Rodal or Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary, those were like some of my favorites. So um, definitely have some memories of, of the Patchogue Medford Library. That's right. Go Pat Med. So we have to ask you, um, not, without asking your age, do you remember it when it was on Main when it's where it, at its current location on Main Street, or do you remember the old Carnegie building? Uh, it was, I remember an old building, so it was probably the old Carnegie building. The one across from the firehouse, right? Yeah, yep. With the big glass building kind of attached to it. Adults was downstairs, children's was upstairs. Yeah, I think so. Okay, thank you. Then we're about well, the same age, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hey, it's so... Back. It's back too, Chris. Carnegie Library is back. Yeah, it's back. Did you? I don't know if you heard, but uh, it became Briarcliff College for a while. Mm -hmm. And then Briarcliff moved to another building and it sat vacant. And they actually picked up the library, the old library, the old building and moved it to the corner of Main Street and West Street, right oh, next to the 6th nice. District Court, and they refurbished it. Now it's their teen center. Fantastic. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And they, they did a nice job refurbishing it, too. Sounds awesome. Okay, next question. When did you decide to work in a library? And if not, uh, what was your first career path? Because many librarians choose uh, the profession as a second or even third career. Sure. So... Um you know, I just I was graduating from college and I still did not know what I wanted to do. So the library seemed the obvious choice since I was working in one and um, I always enjoyed being in the library. So, um, it, you know, I thought about I really wanted to do archives, um, but I was um, doing my direct study in an archives and pretty much everybody there like kind of was like, well, we like it, but it's really, really hard to get a job because once somebody gets a job, they never leave. So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I started working at New York Public Library and I just really loved it. So um, I stayed with public libraries. And we're glad that you did, for sure. I do a brief stint in, uh, at Dow Jones as uh, they called us customer service librarians, but I worked with their uh, interactive product. But I was only there for about a year and a half and I missed people, so... I went back to the public library. Great. So who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? Um, probably Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, cool. Great answer. <laughs> what would <Great>. you be, <laughs> So what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library? Um, I don't know. I would probably be working in, like, maybe museums or something. I always have been interested in, like... Um, 
you know, historic preservation and that kind of thing. So like, um, that would be like my other thing I would, I would maybe be into, or I don't know, maybe doing, being a lawyer or something. I enjoy true, true crime. So (laughs) 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 I don't know if I could really hack that. So, so what is your favorite section of the library? Um, probably the, the cookbooks, if you're asking about the book section that I enjoy. I have like a whole stack of cookbooks here from the library sitting on my my table. Um, I just, I love, I've always loved cookbooks and um, I do like cooking and baking, but I just, I love looking at the pictures and um, I know I'm like really addicted to the Great British Baking Show right now. So like, I have to, <laughs> my, my younger Hollywood. daughter is actually, that's pretty funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like curious to see what their method is. <laughs> So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Um, well, I would definitely add a fireplace and like seating with a fireplace. I, when I worked in Arbor, we had a fireplace and it was so awesome. Um, and I think people would really love that. Um, I would definitely have a dedicated um, maker space where we could have like, so it's not like in the boiler room on the floor of my office, in a closet somewhere else. <laughs> Everything is like, together and accessible in the same space. Um, I just went to a really cool library in Delaware the other day and like they had these awesome, I don't know, they called it the booktorium and it was like this room that was created in the middle of the library and on the outside there was like shelves and the one in the kids room had like um, things that the kids could play with and then you open a door and you walked into the most incredible story, story hour room ever and it had like twinkling lights in the ceiling like stars and it was even like you were on a planet. Um, so something like that would be really awesome. Um, I don't know. I just to have more space that we can like actually have programs, um, different kinds of sizes of spaces that uh, we could have different th- kinds of things going on. So we're not all trying to same, share the same space and having my own office without a bathroom in it that people keep coming into and <laughs> <laughs> like, put stuff away. <laughs> That's funny. I really like my own office. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So, um, what do you absolutely love about your library? Not the um, office, I guess, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, or the bathroom. The <laughs> <laughs> my office is in this building that was built in like 1820. So, it has these <laughs> walls and it's always cold. Um, I don't know. So, what I love about my library, really just the, the community. We have a really, um, awesome community. The township is really supportive. Um, the, the, the people that come in are, you know, we have our, our share of weirdos, but, um, you know, for the most part, people are, are really nice and they love the library. And um, most people are like really excited about uh, moving to the new location when we get that in a couple years. So it's nice to be someplace where people are excited about the library and what's going on and supportive. And I have an awesome board um, who are just like, you know, you do whatever you want to do, try it out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. We just, you know, go back to the drawing board and, and do something else. So it's, it's really nice having that kind of support from the board where they, um, encourage us to try different things and, and see what works. Um, and I have a great staff, so, um, and they're all, they've all come over to like, 
loving the making and different things like that. So it's, it's cool to see like at first, you know, some of them were a little skeptical or whatever, but then when they saw it in action and now everybody just really enjoys um, the kinds of programming that we do now and staff come to programs on their time off and, and things like that. So that's like really, um, I really love that. That really is cool. So what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, but the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? <laughs> um, so the weirdest thing that's ever happened in my library is we had this like guy who went from, he was outside climbing the trees, and then he worked his way into the library where he was just kind of going around and acting kind of strange. And apparently he had walked, worked his way from the Acme to the Dunkin' Donuts someplace else to the to the library and this like strange thing of just acting weird and i don't know i've never had people climbing the and we don't have like really climbing trees or like you know trees that you'd have in your front lawn like kind of short like <laughs> not giant trees you know like <laughs> so i was like that was like the weirdest thing that ever happened that was a, a weird a weird dude is he still there or is he gone yeah, they, we ended up calling the police and they took him away and sent him to the hospital or something. He never came back. So he's moved on. That's good. He's moved on. He's somebody else. He's been moved on. <laughs> he's so, moved on. <laughs> so besides the tree climbing uh, fella, who is your favorite regular patron? Okay. <laughs> um, that's a hard question. There's like, I don't know if I have like one person I'd say is my favorite, but um just kind of revitalized our teen advisory board and the, the group that we have participating with that. I think they're like my favorites. They're just, um, we do this, this program for middle school girls in the summer called technicals and a couple of them have joined on like my favorite ones from that program are there. Um, and some other kids that have been participating in, um, kind of starting on the Minecraft club and now are, are, uh, in middle school are participating. So it's like a really fun group and they're like, you know, it's a nice little eclectic group of kids, and they're excited about doing a haunted library, and it's just fun working with them. Uh, I enjoy seeing them. Okay, so our last question. What are people without library cards missing out on? They're missing out on, like, all the awesome things we have. Um, you know, like, we have a great selection of books. Uh, we have kits you can take out. You can take out a ukulele, some little bits. Um and, you know, we have, like, a lot of really great digital resources. Alinda.com, they're missing out on that. Um, you know, they're probably paying for it. And meanwhile, they could get it from the library. Um, you know, Acorn TV and Hoopla, all that cool stuff. Um, I just think they're missing out on a lot of cool resources that they, you know, would probably use and enjoy that maybe they're paying, you know, they're paying taxes and they're probably paying for it someplace else, but they could be getting it um, Getting in and all that and discovering some new, new TV shows to watch, um, books to read, uh, comic books. They're missing out on everything. And isn't it interesting? I've said this before on, on other episodes. We're the only government agency that's there to help you and give you free stuff. Yep. We have museum passes. I mean, they can go. See, yeah, go Exactly. The- yeah, the museum passes all streaming music services and streaming yep. uh, movie services, and it's just that there's just so much to offer, and so many people 
I don't know what it's like when you have your budget vote, but we have at Sage and we have a large district and we just don't get a lot of people turning out to vote. Um, but, you know, it's just, I guess, the way it is right now until the word gets out and the best kept secret in the world gets out and everybody starts using it. Yeah. Hoopla has, like, kind of exploded and <laughs> I'm trying to grapple with how I'm going to handle that next year because I don't, I don't want to, you know, right now we're at five. You can take out five things a month and I really don't want to go any less than that. But some months it's, I mean, it's like just keeps getting more and more popular as people discover it. And it's like controlling that budget's a little. <laughs> right. Cause yet you pay per, pay per play, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And you know, like um, recorded books is starting to move that way with their digital stuff with like Acorn TV. So when somebody accesses it, they have to pay two ninety nine and, we started that in the spring, or I guess in February we started that, and we like already ran out of the allocation that we put. It's really popular. It's a good problem. Yeah. But yeah, do you do you use Canopy at all? No, I did look into that, but I'm thinking about that for uh, 2019. Ah, okay. Yeah, because we have Canopy, and it's a pretty big success. Um, yeah, it worked out here yeah. as well. Yeah, it works out really, really well. So yeah, it looks pretty cool. we want to thank you for being such a good sport and answering our questions. And, you know, it was really great having you on. And it's even better to know that you're originally from Patchogue. Yep. So for everybody from the rest of the country and the rest of the world, too bad. We want a little local. I think you can deal with it. Go Pat Medford. <laughs> yeah, go Patrick Medford. <laughs> so do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want to publicize? Anything you want to, you know, say? Um. <laughs> books where can, where can we get your books uh, yeah get one of my books uh from video games to real life is uh with libraries unlimited and uh makerspace sound and music uh projects for all ages is tab mcgraw hill all available on amazon um i am working on a new project for libraries unlimited uh based off of our our uh, technicals program to get girls interested in stem programming so that'll be sometime uh next year just it's coming along kind of slow <laughs> yeah, it always does. Yeah. And then the deadlines are made, you're like, then you can crank it all out. You're like, why did I wait so long? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> deadlines stink, don't they? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So thanks again for coming on. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Okay. So that's all the time we have for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on our show, please visit our contact us section on the website. Our website, thelibrarypros.com, where we'll have links and photos from this episode uh, on the site. And visit us, visit us on Twitter. It, yes, it's a Thursday night, folks. Uh, visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell a friend about us because that's how, you know, with word of mouth, that's how people... Uh, find out about us. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves. Kristen Christofaro, and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sagem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.